As always, the bottom line upfront summaries for this week's episodes will follow shortly to this. So, um, and to start as well, I want to thank Starburst again for sponsoring the transcripts for this week's uh, interview episodes. Monday is going to be a DevOps angle to data mesh and WePay's journey, which is an interview with Chris Rigamini. Chris and I talked about taking DevOps principles and applying them to data mesh. You know, what have we learned from DevOps that will really help us when doing data mesh? We also discussed WePay's data mesh journey and also how WePay used a really interesting approach to preventing operational changes in, in the way data was stored for the operational systems and how that preventing those changes from breaking downstream data. Uh, so it's kind of somewhat of a continuance around the data contracts concept that that have been uh, uh, quite a few episodes as well. Um, Tuesday is going to be Data Mesh Data Governance, Getting Out of Your Own Way, which is an interview with Sarita Baxt from JPMorgan Chase. So this was a really awesome conversation to help further my data governance learnings and hopefully the communities as well. There's a lot of really practical advice on moving governance from gatekeeper to value creation enabler. What value can you unlock from working closely with teams to remove their fear of of data misuse? There's lots of practical and useful tidbits sprinkled throughout, and it's it's just a a fun conversation. Wednesday um, is going to be Mesh Musings 9, which is going to be to analytics engineer or not to analytics engineer. That's a question. This is one about how to model out your teams by who are your data product developers. Is that going to be that your data product should be developed and maintained by kind of the the developers, uh, the software developers, the application developers, the software engineers, or should you embed a data engineer or an analytics engineer into your uh, domains to help them with that? It's more about practical considerations versus choosing a specific model and saying, this is the best way to do it. I have a model that I I prefer from the conversations I'm talking with people, uh, but really it's very situationally dependent. If you aren't adapting to your situation, you're doing it wrong, right? Rather than saying, oh, uh, Jamac prefers this model or, you know, Scott or whoever else prefers this other model. Um, If you're not adapting it to your situation, you're you're doing it wrong, <laughs> which is probably the one of the key considerations around data mesh is not to take what other people are doing and try and copy it uh, explicitly. On Friday, we're going to have data mesh evaluation and implementation insights. This is an interview with Steven Nguyen and Guillermo Sanchez from GoData Driven, um, which is a consultancy uh, out of the Netherlands. Uh, There's some more good color here on how to evaluate if data mesh is a good fit for your organization, like time to to get to data and if domains are are already hiring their own data engineers just to be able to handle their data and things like that. There's some really good um, deep dives into things to really, really look for. Uh, We also discussed some more about driving buy-in and especially Steven had some really good insights on driving insights via your C-level sponsor and kind of how to get to that C-level sponsor and things like that. Um, And we also talked about the concept of creating an easy path on how to to make this, you know, a data mesh implementation, just kind of an easy choice for people to get bought in on both the data producer and the data consumer side. So um, 
I think you'll enjoy this week's episodes. Next week, we will have uh, the first of a couple of takeover weeks that are going to happen in April. Um, This one's going to be for the Knowledge Graph Conference, and it'll include uh, a free ticket giveaway as well. So uh, do keep an eye out for that and or an ear out, I guess, since it's a podcast. As always, please look to the Patreon. Um, There's a lot of episodes up there. Um, It's going to be hitting probably about, uh, I think, 15 by uh, mid this week, if I can get through all the production on those. Um, Also, really, really consider how you can contribute to the community. There are tons of articles that are getting posted, but most of those are just kind of lost in the noise. Look how you can really drive an impact for people. You know, volunteer to run the meetup. Look to help with office hours when we launch them. This community 100% will not survive. It is mostly driven by one person, by myself. So please do step up. You don't need my permission to do so, but I can help as well. So please, 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 we need more people stepping up and just saying, hey, I've got ideas. Not necessarily I've even got answers, but we need more people to contribute 30 minutes, an hour every week or two. It's not a huge commitment. You don't have to take on the world, but people aren't stepping up and we need that. Otherwise, this community is is going to flounder in you know the next six months or so. So please, for the love of God, step up. Thanks. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Sarita Bax, Managing Director and a Leader in Firmwide Data Management at J.P. Morgan Chase. I asked Sarita to be on because of her deep experience in data mesh and her great perspective on data governance in data mesh. We summed up the episode with talking about getting out of your own way regarding data governance in, in data mesh. You're going to learn and your approach will evolve as you learn. It's okay to not know everything up front. Set yourself up to not get in trouble with the proper guardrails in place, but you won't know everything. Data risk controls are relatively easy to measure, so get to a place where you can focus on adding value to individual data products and at the mesh level via standards and guiding principles and things like that. Think of designing your risk controls as toll gates and make sure that they aren't bottlenecks. So kind of popping up to a higher level, historically, data governance has meant controls and gatekeeping to most people, typically getting in the way of innovation, kind of, oh, no, I have to deal with the data governance team. So there needs to be a focus on changing that narrative, not just through words, but actions to show it's not the case anymore. In data mesh, you need to ensure that domains can make good decisions on governance and seek out the governance subject matter experts when it makes sense to do so. But a lot of that is giving giving teams the responsibilities and then the understanding to know when to make that call and when to seek guidance or help. One of the key issues in the way governance has been done is the people making the decisions, the central governance team, don't have the real understanding of the data. 
when those decisions are put in the hands of the people who really know the data, but with good guardrails and, and especially that good guidance, the fear is lifted about, can we actually use this data and how can we use it? So goodbye to data trepidation. This opens up a lot of new opportunities to leverage your data, but you must really know your, your boundaries about what's allowed slash in good taste slash ethical. Basically, if you set your governance up well, it can make it your teams feel safe to leverage data in new and innovative ways, driving significant value. Sarita strongly recommends starting with purpose-built data products. Find a use case and build data products to serve that, that specific use case. And data products must be about unlocking business value. You don't need to serve up all of a domain's data on day one, in version one you know, of that domain's first data product. Make your data products extensible and reusable so you can find additional consumers and expand that data product over time. This is a recurring theme from, from many episodes. Lorenzo Nicora, for example, covered the same concept really well in his episode on domain-driven design for data. When thinking about broad governance, a few things Sarita emphasized were you, you don't need to have the firm-wide vision completed at the start. You should be providing guidance, not making decisions on most issues. You know, have some standards so people don't have to invent things from scratch. Standards for interoperability, naming, etc. And think of them as guiding principles instead of rules. Make sure domain owners know who to contact and, and when on the governance subject matter expertise. She also hit on the issue of data products and, and column naming a lot, which she was saying, and, and I agree with her, is pretty key for, for data discovery. That, that naming convention, is, as annoying as it can be, really does help when you're thinking about, okay, should I explore this data product? Um, so that way people actually will go and, and be able to find the data that they want uh, if, if you've already created it. A great point and quick soundbite around data mesh and, and intentionality was creating copies of data isn't necessarily bad. Just don't inadvertently become a redistribution point of data. If you're going to be redistributing data, you need to have the intentionality around that. You need to want to be a redistribution point. Don't uh, accidentally become that. You're going to learn a lot from this one, plus there are some good laughs uh, along the way. I think you'll really enjoy it, and Sarita is very sharp and just a delight to have on. So with that, let's, let's go ahead and get to the episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Chris Ricomini, a software engineer, author, and investor. I'd asked Chris to be on about, because he had written an article about a DevOps angle when thinking about data mesh, and it was called, like, what the heck is data mesh? Chris was also leading the infrastructure team at WePay when they embarked on a data mesh journey. So he's had some perspective about how, how to think about this. 
like a number of people and organizations that have come on the podcast at WePay, Chris was pursuing the general goals of Data Mesh and was applying some of the approaches as well, but it was not nearly as cohesive as Jmac had laid has laid things out. So he was trying to go down this path and then you know stumbled across the article and was like, oh, okay, here's a cohesive way of approaching this. Their initial setup before kind of heading down this route was two teams really managing the pipeline transformation infrastructure. Chris's team was mostly handling the extracting and loading. And then there was a team of analytics engineers at kind of the end of the process handling the transformations. So again, Chris handled the E and L and the other team handled the T. The transformation team saw a major increase in demand and quickly became overloaded they became a bottleneck. Chris's team also started to get a bit overloaded as well. So that's why they started to look at kind of transitioning more towards data mesh specifically. One way the team started to address the bottlenecks was by decentralizing the pipelines. Teams could make a request for a pipeline to, you know, transform their data themselves so they could serve data and it would essentially get automatically set up for them. WePay is in the financial services space, so as part of those pipelines to prevent risk, there were the ability for teams to mark their uh, sensitive slash PII columns, and, and the infrastructure team also put in some auto detection capabilities to make sure they didn't miss any of that those PII columns, again, to prevent that risk. WePay had created a, a CDR or canonical data representation that's pretty analogous to a data product in Data Mesh. Chris really liked uh, WePay's use of the embedded analytics engineer into the domains to help create those, those CDRs. This has been a topic up for debate, and it seems like for fast growing companies, one that are called startups, but really aren't anymore startups are the ones that that it might make a lot of sense. And Flexport has done the same. But I would look at somebody like Nav, who had put um, analytics engineers into their domains, and those people were simply working alongside, not as part of the team. So it is an interesting thing to, to think about and choose uh, what's going to work for your company. One key innovation for WePay was tooling to enable safe application schema evolution. This has been one of the things I've talked about a lot, that we don't have good tooling to enable safe application schemas evolution. So I think you should really listen for that aspect alone. I think there's a lot in this episode, but I think that specifically was really good. They'd look for things like dropped columns and, you know, more data or more comprehensive data contract checking mechanisms. They had two layers that they were working on with this. It allowed the developers to test their changes that they were going to make pre-commit. You know, 80 to 90% of the data breakages that were detected were things that developers had no idea would cause an issue and they reverted those changes. Now, typically dropping a column or changing a column name, those types of things that constantly break data, but aren't necessary to the actual schema evolution or anything like that. That remaining 10 to 20% of the time, the developers still wanted to go through with the changes, and that kicked off negotiations with the data consumers. That kind of forced conversation was very helpful for a lot of reasons around 
developing that relationship between the producers and the consumers and figuring out what was okay to do and what wasn't. Chris talked about three data sharing patterns and their strengths and weaknesses. One is doing the transformations within the database itself, where the application schema is also stored. This makes data versioning very difficult, however. The outbox pattern, which Abby at Flexport also covered, is more of a traditional ETL pattern. And then there is the ELT pattern, where you transform data upon landing it in a data warehouse or data lake. On the question of should you try to get everyone to use your self-serve platform, all the domains that are producing data, should they all use your your platform? Chris talked about standardizing around technology and, and creating a standardized stack, but also allowing teams to roll their own if they wanted. But they were super clear with those teams that were rolling their own. They weren't gonna support the tech. Even if it was okay to use it, the data infrastructure team wasn't gonna support everything that everybody wanted. We discussed how both of us see a major need for an API gateway concept for data. Currently, everything around versioning and managing documentation, you know, auto documentation and otherwise, all of that metadata management, just a lot of this information, is just way too manual and, and high friction. We really do need people to start moving on this one as, as a community, honestly, because we're, everybody has to reinvent the wheel and getting to a place where we can have that low friction around versioning and things like that, it's really, really crucial. Chris talked about taking the learning from DevOps and applying them to data mesh. In general, we need to do that from many disciplines, but DevOps is one of those that's really, really crucial to really learn from what they've done, the mistakes and, and the good things that the DevOps community has done and apply them here. Uh, one good kind of practice to look at for Chris is, is the embedded SRE concept. So should you do the same with the data or an analytics engineer, as I discussed earlier? There is also a need for standards and replicable patterns and things like that. Um, at WePay, they launched a data review committee similar to a design review committee that helped them to come up with standard data models and other standards as well because they got to see what everyone was doing and then create the standards to reduce that friction and, and ensure interoperability and things like that. We talked about the concept of Sherpas, not gatekeepers. Build out your review functions as councils to guide and disseminate knowledge right? The team's role from that council perspective should be about assisting where they can, being a trusted partner. Not that that you must, you know, comply with these things and they've got their commandments and things like that. It's that this is a partnership model. And what we pay saw was that as people went through more and more of the reviews, they, they saw that there was less of a need for the reviews as people learned what good and slash best practices were, you know, it really did disseminate that knowledge. Lastly, Chris wrapped up on a point many others have made, including uh, Xavi, uh, you know, Xavier Gumaro Rigol, about the cost of making a mistake. You need to make it as low as possible. Back processing data can be very costly in, in compute, but also in the time to kind of fix that mistake and change kind of what you've done. So there's a lot of, of really good things to learn from this one, and, and I think you'll enjoy it as well.
line up front. What are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed two people from the data consultancy Go Data Driven, Stephen Nguyen, head of strategy, and Guillermo Sanchez, analytics engineering tech lead. Guillermo started off by talking about how he was seeing the data engineering team as the bottleneck for a few years before Data Mesh came onto the scene. So it really made a lot of sense for him when he first saw it. For Steven, they were seeing lots of companies that were building out data platforms, especially data lakes, and then not really getting the promised benefits. So a lot of what Jamak talked about in that kind of beyond the data lake initial concept really did uh, make a lot of sense and it, and it fit with kind of what the, the GoData folks Go data driven folks were seeing. We discussed the idea that data mesh is right for every company. It's not. It's not right for every company. And what are some good signs that an organization should consider doing data mesh? Stephen mentioned that for Go data driven's e commerce clients who are smaller and digital slash cloud native, the centralized team is not really a bottleneck yet. Of course, there are always data challenges, but it's important to identify you know, what's actually happening and not just vilify centralization. The less digital native, larger customer organizations, though, are definitely seeing the centralization bottlenecks. On signs that you might want to evaluate data mesh, Guillermo pointed to a lot of the usual suspects, you know, size of company, size of data team, how many data teams or, or how many data consuming teams do you have, how many data sources do you have, et cetera. He then gave a specific example. If you have a data analyst in a consuming domain that has to wait more than one week for data, there is a bottleneck somewhere. Is it centralization? Not sure, but it's time to start to investigate as to what's causing that. That, That's a problem. Stephen gave the example of an even earlier indicator for a lot of companies, which that, that bottlenecks are really occurring, is that teams are starting to hire their own data people rather than leverage the central team. And then Guillermo kind of piled on that, pointed to a rise of data consuming teams getting direct data access from the producing teams instead of going through the data team. That's another warning sign that you've got a lot of bottlenecks going through there. And that, as people are are very well uh, aware, that having that kind of one-to-one consumption model on based on the application model is where a lot, lot, lot of problems happen. So if you see that, it's going to cause a lot of pain anyway. So you want to start to look at something like this. Guillermo made a very crucial point in my mind. Data mesh is really about interfaces. People talk about data products being the technical communication interface between teams. And and I think that makes a lot of sense. So as long as you trust the data product and that people are adhering to interface standards, data mesh can really work right? It's about where there is communication between two different teams. There is an interface that is understood and trustable. But both Guillermo and Steven talked about the need for an easy path, a golden path for domain teams to take so they can make it easy to share their data in the vast majority of use cases, right? That it's relatively simple and low friction if you provide them that golden path. 
And there's also a need for some quality control to make sure data products are trustworthy, you know, having reasonable SLAs that they meet and, and all of that. So again, if, if you think about that interface, there needs to be trust that that interface is going to work, but it really is a good way of thinking about you have your encapsulation within your domain and that your data on the outside, the way that you interface with other teams is, is via your data product. So per Stephen, what they've seen in most domains that they're working with relative to, to data mesh, most domains are happy to follow that golden path. But you certainly need that path to start out where they are. Trying to make them use completely foreign tooling and workflows, it's just going to be a tough sell, right? It, you have to, to meet them where they are and create that golden path from there. They're also having some, some decent success with having the concept of kind of a certified data product, you know, certified grade A data product label that comes from the core data mesh implementation team. And so if you're using that happy path, you kind of get that automatically. But it's harder to get that if you use your own tooling. There's a lot more checking, but they make that so that way teams can, can have that low friction way to get that kind of certification. This all, you know, obviously acts as a quality control measure. Stephen talked about when evaluating where on the centralization, decentralization slider decisions should fall, you should really look at domain maturity and organization maturity. Centralization pri provides more support, if more of a bottleneck, in many cases. So there is that trade-off between that support and that bottleneck. If you still need that support, you have to deal with there being a bottleneck, but you're not just throwing everybody out there and saying, you know, just do the thing and everybody's kind of not figuring out how to do that. They need some support in a lot of cases. Are domains really ready to take on the full responsibility of whatever task you are considering? It's, it's okay to not have a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Each domain and challenge can be unique if, if it needs to be. Your approach to that can be unique. Guillermo recommends looking at your implementation with that kind of journey lens that we've been talking about in a lot of these things. It's a gradual process. It's not a one or a zero. You're on this journey. And you want to look for nodes. So in the data mesh terminology, that'd be data products in, in data mesh that you can move quickly on towards publishing data and, and have a higher return more quickly. Somewhat atypically, Guillermo and Steven recommended starting your proof of concept, if you even need to do a proof of concept, with a single domain. They recommend starting with uh, an eager domain and to make sure that, they, that that domain has the support from the platform team. Pick a consumer-aligned domain with a high demand for data. Again, some of this advice round, runs counter to what many have said, and, and it's absolutely valid to put that out there. Instead of the proof of concept, Stephen recommends trying to drive the high-level buy-in via a C-level sponsor. That way, you have time and funding to get things moving. It's obviously easier said than done, but if you can go this route, you're journey is likely to be smoother as you won't have to constantly be looking for funding and kind of proving every step along the way that this is valuable what you're doing. When driving buy-in via the C-level sponsor, Stephen mentioned never once using the phrase data mesh. The, the execs really responded to the phrase self-service and kind of the concept around the fourth industrial revolution. 
So I think that's that's helpful. Again, I, I've talked about this before, but talking about data mesh outside of the technical team, it just it's setting yourself up for more confusion and and friction. When driving buy-in, Guillermo talked about directly telling the teams, what does this all mean explicitly for them? This has been something a lot of folks have said, but go and talk to them and tell them what does this mean and what do they get out of it? You know, make it mutually beneficial for them to participate. So there's a lot of really interesting tidbits in here. I think it, it provides a unique perspective and um, some, some really good uh, thoughts to, to really digest around your data mesh implementation. 